This has come to the table. Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY dash giving. Turn with me, if you would, to 1 Samuel. Now, some of you, it might be a surprise. Some of you, not so much a surprise. We've been there recently, haven't we? Last Thursday night, we were preaching out of it and preaching, uh, finishing that message, or our intention was to finish that message last Sunday night, and then the Lord took that in a different direction. But we're in 1 Samuel. But turn, if you would, please, to chapter 8. Turn to chapter 8. So you know it's not the same stuff as we were preaching about, but it is from the same, it is from the same period it involves some of the same people. And I'm going to go ahead and read. You know what? I may just read. It's not a particularly long chapter. I may just read. Let me just begin. And then we'll actually dig into it. Because there are some critical lessons in this. And as I promised last week, even though we did not finish Matthew chapter 10, we're taking a break from our red letter studies this week only, unless the Lord wants us to continue in a different vein until we come back to that. Because we've been studying the teachings of Jesus literally all year long so far. And so there's a lot of other stuff in the Word. Not that I'm placing a higher value or, a, or placing any, a lower value on anything. It's all inspired by God. But again, be it the will of the Lord. We'll be back in our red letter studies next week. But for tonight... 1 Samuel chapter 8, and if you'll remember, okay, this was a time of transition for the whole nation of Israel. This was a major time of transition for the whole, nature, for the whole nation of Israel. Let's begin in verse 1. And it came to pass, when Samuel was old, that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre, or money, and took bribes and perverted judgment. And that's what greed does to everything, doesn't it? Corrupts it from the top to the bottom. And that's usually the direction that it goes. From the top to the bottom, it perverts everything. They perverted judgment. Then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together and came to Samuel in Ramah. And said unto him, Behold, thou art old. That was subtle, wasn't it? Hey, you're an old man. Behold, thou art old. And thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Wow. Now there's some really deep implications to this right here. And we're going to get into this in a moment. But let's read on. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even unto this day, wherewith they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet 
protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. Okay, now let's enter into the third act on this one. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, This will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, and to be his, and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariots. And he will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be confectionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And he will take your, your men servants and your maid servants and your goodliest young men and your asses and will put them to his work. Notice the phrasing there. He will put them to his work. And he will take the tenth of your sheep and ye shall be his servants. And ye shall cry out in that day because of your king, which ye shall have chosen you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Now let's actually stop right there. We could read through to the end, but I want to stop, and then we're going to backtrack. Do you see what's happening? Do you see what's happening? This was an entire change. This was a fundamental change in the governmental structure of the nation of Israel. Now, they had been a nation for some hundreds of years. It had been that long since Moses had brought them up by the mighty hand of God out of bondage in Egypt, and then some 40 years wandering in the desert, we know why, and then into the promised land, and then all of the years that it took to conquer and to subdue and to, and to, uh, to carve out the territories that they had for the various tribes, 11 of the 12 tribes, because the 12th tribe, or whichever one, whichever number of tribe Levi was, did not get an inheritance of land. They had cities, but they did not have country of their own, so to speak, because their inheritance was the Lord Himself. And it's important to know that. It's important to know that because it ties into some other things. But so for the next several hundred years after they came into the promised land, if you will, and it became Israel, well, who were they ruled by? Well, they were ostensibly, they were ruled by God. They had a king. The Lord God of Israel was their king. He was their ruler. They had the law of Moses, they, including the Ten Commandments. They had the priesthood, and the priesthood had their role. The priesthood, the priests were not secular rulers. They were priests. That's what they were. That was their job. That's what they were involved in. But, well, okay, well then who was in charge? Well, there were 12 tribes and they pretty much managed themselves. As far as their day-to-day -day affairs and judgment and that sort of thing, they had elders in their tribes and they saw to different matters and took care of things. They had the law so they knew what to do. But they were, for the most part, a self-governing people under the law and under the rule of Almighty God. They didn't have a centralized government. There was no throne and a seat of power, so to speak. And so they really didn't have problems like 
taxation. They didn't have to worry about internal oppression and secret police and all of these other special problems that these problems that come that are particular to human government. But now let's go back let's, with this in mind. Well, what about the judges? Okay, well, let me actually cover that. When Israel would go astray, or when some of the tribes of Israel would go astray, God would, in a corrective action, allow one of their enemies to come in and to oppress and to vex and even defeat them in battle and then exact taxes from them and cause them a lot of problems and do the things that sin does to people today, spiritually speaking. Because sin is exhausting because it comes with a price. And so that would happen. The intent wasn't to crush Israel or to, to destroy them. It was to turn their hearts back to God. It was to turn their hearts back to God. And that's what would happen over and over again. They would go astray. God would let the oppressor of the day, the Midianites or, or, or some, one of the other nations round about them, come in, defeat them militarily, uh, put them under a, a, a hard burden, make them labor, tax them to death or whatever, or, or take a lot of their food, their substance, perhaps even some of their people. They would cry out to God. God would raise up a judge. And it wasn't from any one particular tribe. He wouldn't always raise them up from Judah or raise them up from, from, a, from another group, a Benjamin or what have you. He would raise up whoever he saw fit. And if there were stipulations on that, it's not spelled out in the Word. God knoweth. And that's good enough for us. But he would raise up that judge. The judge would raise up an army. And they would go up against their enemies. God would grant them victory. It would be wonderful. People's hearts would be turned again to the Lord, and then they would that judge would rule. He wouldn't rule all of Israel, but he might rule that tribe or a certain region with more than one tribe in it. He would rule until he died. And then rinse and repeat. It wouldn't take long, maybe only a generation after that, and Israel's heart would turn right back into idolatry and things like that. And it was a vicious cycle that they were engaged in, and this lasted for a long time. Sometimes the periods of righteousness were longer, sometimes shorter. Well, here, uh, as we preached about, or as we preached from on Thursday and again on Sunday night, it was during a period of time when things were really starting to change. And a lot of that had to do with, I really believe a lot of that had to do with their lackluster, clock-punching, done-for-the-day high priest, Eli. And we already talked about him extensively. I don't want to spend a whole lot of time on him. Eli did not take the work seriously anymore. Eli was tired and he just wanted to be done. And ultimately, it cost him. It cost him everything. It cost him, and it cost Israel too. But now, God still had one more man. And that was this this man, Samuel. Now Samuel was brought to the house of the Lord when he was very young. We talked about the circumstances surrounding that. Um, how he was, even his name, uh, what his name means. It actually means, I believe, given of God or given by God, gift of God. Words to that effect. And that's exactly what he was. Well, Samuel grew up. He grew up in the house of the Lord. And he was a priest unto the people. But he was more than a priest. He was also a prophet. We've been talking about that over the last week or so. The difference between the two. Sometimes people could be both. Sometimes people could be both. Samuel was a Levite. He had to have been. Or he could not have been a priest. 
So he was a descendant uh, within the whole tribal structure of the tribe of Levi. I think he came from a subsection of that tribe, but still of the priesthood, so he could be a priest. But he was also, the Lord had revealed himself to him, had revealed himself to him through his word, and he was also a prophet to the people. So this was a rare bird. This was a man that worked both ways. He represented the people to God, and he represented God to the people. A tremendous living asset to any nation, especially to the people of God. Is someone that can go both ways, so to speak. So this was Samuel, but Samuel grew, and Samuel eventually grew old. He married, we know that he married because he had two sons. He eventually had two sons. And his sons, like Eli's sons, they weren't good sons. Now, they may not have been as bad, but they still weren't good. They still weren't good. So let's go back to our reading now, and now we'll actually get into the guts of our lesson. So he says, It came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of the firstborn was Joel, and the name of the second was Abiah or Abiah. They were judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after money. They turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. That's why people in power have to be of absolute impeccable character. They cannot be for sale because once they're for sale, then everything starts to go downhill. If they can be bought, if they can be bribed, if they're like most politicians today, won't say all, but I will say most. And they've made, them, they've made their own reputation for that. So that's why I don't back down from calling it out. That's why they've got, they have to be of impeccable character because when they're not, then you don't know if you're getting good judgment or not. You don't know if you're getting good judgment on a matter or not because somebody slips them enough money and it's just like, it's just like anything where money gets or the love of money gets involved. It perverts it, it corrupts it because people want that and they will value the money and they will value the reward above the standards of righteousness themselves. And then that's just... You're murdering your society. You're murdering your, only, your own society by inches. You're killing it slowly. And so he said, they took bribes and they perverted judgment. And so after a while, the people got sick of this because people are not stupid. They really aren't. They may not always be right with God. They may have a lot of flaws and a lot of deep and abiding character flaws, but they're not stupid. They have brains, God has given them intelligence, and they know when someone's on the take. They can tell. And so after a while, they got tired of this. And so they came to Samuel because Samuel was the last of the judges. The last of the good ones. He was the last of the judges. And so they came to him and they said, Behold, thou art old. In other words, your days are numbered, Samuel, and we know you're not going to be with us forever. And your sons walk not in thy ways. We don't want to be under their rule because they're corrupt. And so they said, now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. And that's where things really start to go south. So the first lesson that we take from this narrative, and there's a reason why we're digging into this. The first lesson we take from it is the consequence of of corruption of any kind in government. The consequence of corruption in places of power. You know that there's a very thin dividing line between a good king and a murderous tyrant. 
And it's, and it's important to understand this too, because believe it or not, this ties into some of our own American history here. And I don't know if you've ever gone back and read some of the early documents that were drawn up in the days before the revolution that were building support and were building the case for rebelling against England and becoming our own country. But some of those talk about and draw right from the Bible, right from Samuel, I do believe, also from the book of Kings and possibly Chronicles. They draw right from that, that God never wanted a king in Israel to begin with. And that human monarchies really do set the stage for a lot of problems. They really do. And we'll talk more about that. But this is not necessarily a lesson in early American history, but it all ties together. The people had felt... They had felt before the tyrannical treatment of the sons of Eli, the high priest. They'd already been through this. They'd already been through this. They were tired of it. They didn't want to go through that again. They didn't want two more priests or judges or whoever they were abusing them and taking things by force. They didn't want that. And so they came to, they came to Samuel on the matter. They weren't going to put up with it again. And the devil took occasion by this to put within them a rebellious heart on this matter because they'd never had a king before they'd always been self-governing they'd always been self-governing and one might make the argument that well it doesn't sound like a bad idea how does how do you equate this with rebellion pastor how do you equate this with rebellion because God had always been their king God had brought them up out of Egypt God had brought them through the wilderness. God had established them there uh, in the promised land, in the land of Canaan and the, the, the areas that he had promised to Abraham. God had been with them all through that ordeal. He had been with Moses. He had been with Joshua. He had been with Joshua's, um, Joshua's successor. And then all the way down through the line of judges to this day. And now suddenly they want a king. Why? Why? Well, we get to the root of the matter here in, this, in, in the same verse. They said, make us a king rather than deliver us from your sons. Do you see? The answer is found in some of the things they said and some of the answers found in some of the things they didn't say. Why this radical change? Well, it was already on their hearts. Or they, they didn't just wake up one morning and say, you know what, let's change the entire structure of our society and how we're governed, okay? No. This had been boiling in their hearts for some time already. And you see that happen in individual people's lives when they decide to, uh, when they just blow out a church or walk away from the faith and then off into sin. It's not something that they just woke up one morning and said, you know what, I think I'm out of here. I think I'm going to go back to being what I used to be. No, it's been boiling in their heart for a long time already. They've had leaving on their mind for a while. They really have. And a lot of times, they come to the place where they're just looking for the excuse. Because they know it's not the right decision to make, but they still want to make that decision. And there's a direct parallel between these two things. Israel in the time of the judges wanting a king suddenly, and a modern day believer wanting to just cash out and go back to the life that they used to have because there's something in the world that they lust after. There's a direct parallel there because in both cases, in the case of the 12 tribes of Israel suddenly wanting a king and in the case of a believer wanting to just go back to the old life, they no longer want God over them. Period. There's something else 
that they want more. And so they begin looking for an excuse. Well, what was Israel's excuse in this day? Israel's excuse was Samuel's sons were corrupt. Why didn't they just ask, hey, can you appoint some judges that aren't corrupt? It could be that Samuel could have done that. He appointed his own sons. He had authority to do that. Why couldn't he raise up faithful men? Why couldn't he appoint faithful men? So it's revealed in what they said and in what they didn't say. They said, make us a king rather than deliver us from your sons. And so... What was the reaction? What happened after that? Well, we read about it. He said, the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed unto the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto me. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me, that I should not reign over them. In other words, he was telling Samuel, don't take it personally. Just do what they tell you in this. This is I, the Lord, telling you, Samuel, do what they say. Because it's not you they've rejected, it's me they've rejected. Now that speaks to the modern day soul winner, doesn't it? When you go out with an invitation, or you talk to someone about the Lord, or you reach out to somebody with the faith, and they're just, they just don't want it. It's not you that they're rejecting, so don't take it personally. Don't take it personally. It's God that they're rejecting. But because they're not going to yell at God, because that will make them look like a crazy homeless person, right? They're going to yell at you because you're the easy target. You're the one that's there. Don't worry. Don't be afraid. And don't take it personally. Because if you take it personally, then you get bitter in your heart. You turn bitter. It becomes not just a rejection of an invitation. It becomes a rejection of you on a personal, fundamental level. And that breeds resentment in you. And you take it as an injury and a grievance. And then you get mad. And then you start praying like some of the folks did in the Bible that did not have the purest heart. God, judge them! My goodness, do you realize what you're saying? Send fire down from heaven and burn them up like Sodom. Let his house be a dunghill. You get, all, you get all Old Testament in your, in your terminology. That's not the Spirit of Christ. That's not the Spirit of Christ. So, don't take it personally. God told Samuel, don't take it personally. He said, they haven't rejected you, but they've rejected me. And so he goes on in verse 8, According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of, out of Egypt, even unto this day. In other words, God's bringing up their track record. He's bringing up their track record of, on again, off again. Serving God, then not serving God. Living for the Lord, then not serving the Lord. A lot of people that do that on an individual basis nowadays. They're in church and then they're not in church. They're faithful and then they're not. Or they're faithful until they're not. Because there's something in the world that's speaking to their heart. There's something that they want that's in the world. They either want to emulate it or they want to possess it. They want to imitate it, whatever the case may be. That's what he was telling him here. So he says, Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit. Yet protest solemnly unto them. Show them the manner of the king that shall reign over them. So what's the second lesson in this? When you're not in the right state of mind. In other words, when your heart is not perfect towards the Lord, be careful what you wish for. Be careful what you pray for. Be careful when you're not in your right state of mind. When your heart is not perfect towards the Lord, be careful what you pray for because you might just get it. And let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. Take this Take this personally from me. Take, learn from my experience, please. You'll pay for it in spades. 
if you twist the Lord's arm and He gives you what you're asking, but it's against His will, you will pay for it in spades. And you will curse it. And you will wish you had never asked for it. And you will, you will curse darkness upon the day that you impelled God. Not that God, you know what I'm saying, you don't force God to do anything. But you hammer at His doors long enough for something, He might just hand it to you. When you're not in your right state of mind, when you're not, put, when you're not in possession of the mind of Christ on a matter, if it's something that's just not according to the Lord's will, and there are a lot of things that fall into that category. There have been lots of people down through the ages that have twisted God's arm and God just said, okay, fine, do what you want. And then you ended up paying a price. I'm telling you, don't put God in that position. Because then you'll end up yourself in a position where you are not going to be happy. And that thing that you wanted so badly and so desperately, you will come to despise. Because it will bring, it will bring misery on your life. Many times. Maybe not always. Absolute misery. But it certainly won't bring happiness. No, it will not. But this was the state that the people were in. This was the state that the people were in. What the people had not consciously realized was that in rejecting the authority of God's man, Samuel, they were in fact rejecting God Himself. And God equated that here. It's, I'm not just making that up. God equated that here in verses 6, 7, and 8 and so on. He said, listen to them because they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. And so in rejecting Samuel, and re and, uh, they ultimately were rejecting God as their leader. Their motives were born of frustration. Okay, all right, we can respect that. That's understandable. They had corrupt judges over them. But they were also born out of the subtle, serpentine desire to be like everyone else around them. And that was the root of the problem. It wasn't so much the corruption of the corrupt judges. Sure, that was bad, but it was only bad for those that lost in court because that's what it's about, right? You know, a corrupt judge will give unbalanced judgment in court and that's what it was talking about. It worked out great for those that were on the receiving end of the good judgment. It wasn't so much the corruption that irked them. It was that they wanted to be like everybody else. They wanted to be like everybody else. And, they, and, it, and it came out even in their phrasing. What did they say? What did they say? Back in verse 5. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. From the abundance of the, how, of the heart, the mouth speaks, right? Like all the nations. Like our neighbors to the north and to the south and to the east. There wasn't anybody to the west of them. I think it was just water. So they couldn't say that. But like all of the other countries around us, we want to be like them. We want a king. Now that might seem alien to us. It, it does seem alien to us because what are we here? We're a democratic republic, okay? That's our form of government here in the great United States of America. It may seem alien to us because we've no personal experience with monarchies, okay? All we have is what history has told us and how much we resented being under the reign of King George and all of that. But... There's something about having a king, okay? Now I have to step off the text for a little bit to try to frame this in our understanding. There's something about having a king, and it's something that's almost idolatrous in nature. It's, it's almost idolatrous in nature because 
what do kings get? Kings get the best of everything of that particular nation, don't they? They get a crown on their heads. They are adorned in all kinds of glory or such glory, excuse me, such glory as can be manufactured here on the earth, you know. They cover them in robes of furs and of purple or of red and in all kinds of gold and jewels and all these things to hang on a mortal human frame to make it seem more glorious than it normally does in the human eye, doesn't it? It's an opportunity for people to heap praise and adoration and glory and honor onto another human being. Do you see how this is already straying off of the straight path? You see how it's already starting to go in the wrong direction? It is, isn't it? It was no longer good enough for them to be identified as the children of Israel or as a tribe of Israel. Now they wanted to be a kingdom. It has idolatrous roots, as we were just saying. And kings in many times, in, throughout, throughout ancient history, throughout medieval history, even in many places, not necessarily Europe, but in many other places in the world, a king was worshipped as a god, weren't they? They were worshipped as a god. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, worshipped as a god. The emperor of Japan, worshipped as a god. Kings of many other nations round about. The, the, the emperor of China, worshipped as a god or as a son of heaven. They were worshipped as divinity and as deity. And if that's not idolatry, I don't know what is. I don't know what is. That's, that's a terrible missing of the mark. So they're decked with all these things and they're lifted up in glory. And, in, and in, what do you think is going to happen to the unconverted human heart? You think that it's gonna, you think it's going to keep a hold on humility? No. Not without a lot of help. And you read in ancient history even about how ancient Rome, but a lot of their victorious generals, as they would return home from a, a victorious campaign, they'd ride through the streets of Rome in their chariots and be uh, feted and showered with praise and adoration of all, of all of Rome. There was somebody riding in that chariot with that general whose entire job it was to whisper in the general's ear words to this effect. Remember, you're mortal. You are only a man. But a lot of kings and emperors didn't have someone to remind them of that. And so it was very easy for them to become drunk upon their own power. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And without reading all that text again, he warned them. He said, you guys want a king? Let me tell you what kind of king you're going to have. He's going to take this from you. He's going to take this from you. He's going to take your sons. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to conscript them into armies. He's going to take tithes of you, of all your increase. He's going to take your best fields. He's going to take your best olive yards and vineyards. And he's going to give them to his generals, his officers, and his servants. He's going to take all of these things from you to build up his house and his majesty. And you're going to cry out to God in that day. And God's not going to hear you because you asked for this that's what it came down to he warned them this was Samuel's last de desperate warning to the people Samuel their judge their prophet their priest he was all three of these things he was their judge and their prophet and their priest. He was their religious authority, at least next to God, of course. He was their religious authority. He was their, 
he was their intercessor and he was their judge, their civil authority. And he was telling them, this is what it's going to cost you if you go through with this. Sometimes you can preach and you can warn and you can teach and you can counsel and you can pray and you can do everything that you can possibly do to keep someone from going down a wrong path. But man, when they've got their mind made up, that's where they're going to go. Because you can't make anybody do anything. Someone who's maybe on the mend from an addiction and they're on the threshold of of jumping off the wagon because nobody falls off the wagon. It's a deliberate act. It's a deliberate decision to step down off that wagon and go right back into what they were. And that's just one example. There's so many other things that people, like James said, you know, that we are, we are tempted when we are drawn away of our own lusts and enticed. And so it can be many different things. But whatever it is, once a person's got their mind made up, nope, this is what I want. This is what I'm going after. Leave me alone. Give me what I want. Don't stand in my way. Samuel gave his last effort, his last warning, and they, they insisted. What did they say here? Let's go back to our, our reading, our text. Nevertheless, verse 19, nevertheless, even with the warning that God's not going to hear you when you cry out, even with that warning, they said, nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, nay, but we will have a king over us. That we may also, and here's the motives coming out of the heart, the true motives. That we, may, that we also may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. That was another thing was cowardice. Cowardice. Because they didn't have a standing army. They were the standing army. Israel was its own standing army. And so when there was a conflict to be had, they had to pull from their own resources, have their own weapons, do their own, they had to do their own fighting. But now they were thinking, you know what, if we have a king, that means we're going to have a standing army and our armies will go out and fight our battles for us. We don't have to contend for our own sovereignty anymore. We can have these people do it for us. Guess what, Christian? Ain't nobody going to do your fighting for you but you. Now the preacher will pray, and your brothers and sisters in Christ will pray. We'll do that, because we'll fight with you. Right? But you've got to do your own fighting also. My first pastor said this 25 years ago. Learned an awful lot from my first pastor. I admire him to this day. And he said it 25 years ago, and I believe he still says it now, when, when appropriate. You know, people can pray for you, but they can't pray for you. You understand that distinction? They can't do your praying for you. You've got to pray for yourself as well as for others. You've got to contend for the faith yourself. You've got to step up and be a soldier of the cross. Because, let me tell you something about the spiritual war that we're in, okay? There are no casualties in this spiritual war who are not suicides. Let this sink down deeply into our ears and into our hearts tonight. There are no casualties of the spiritual war 
who are not effectively suicides. I don't mean literally going out and swallowing a shotgun or taking a bunch of pills and offing themselves. That's not what I'm saying. I mean spiritual suicides. Someone doesn't get taken out by the devil. Someone doesn't get sniped by one of his minions, so to speak. It doesn't happen that way. It's always a deliberate choice. Because we have the promise of God. We have the promise of God over there in Romans that He will not suffer us to be tempted above that which we are able. He said with every temptation He'll make a way of escape. And so that means that if we allow ourselves to be taken in a temptation, it's because we've allowed ourselves to be taken in a temptation. It's a deliberate choice. And so when you hear somebody, you hear somebody uh, mumble out this lame duck excuse of, it's not even an excuse, it's just, it's just a lie that they've believed. That, oh, well, you know, you have to sin a little every day. You know, I'm not perfect. Oh, I'm no angel. That's what one guy likes to tell me. I'm no angel. I'm no angel. You know, I, I, I do a little of this and a little of that. It's always a deliberate choice. It might be a decision of a split second. Well, I was caught off guard. Maybe you were, but you still chose to do the wrong thing if you chose to do the wrong thing. You know what I'm saying? It always comes down to a choice. It might be, it might be a decision of a split second, or it might be something that has boiled and festered or grown in the heart over a period of months or sometimes even years. How long did it take Israel to get to the place where they were ready to give voice to that desire. Give us a king. We don't want God anymore. Well, what's the, less, what's the overall lesson for us in this? Keep God as your king. Keep God as your king. There's a danger even really, and I've got to be careful how I phrase this, okay? Because God appoints ministers for church government and all that. I understand that. He, he sets up pastors and he, he appoints teachers and preachers and evangelists and prophets and all these things that he talks about over in the New Testament that are, that are set for the propagation of the gospel, for the perfecting of the saints and all of that, okay? But your pastor isn't your king, and when you die, you don't answer to your pastor. Now, I'm not trying to detract from my own ordained authority you know, by the grace of God. And I say this very carefully because I'm nothing. I'm nothing but the same bag of clay that any of us are. Okay, So it's not like I'm trying to boast or anything like that. But don't hang your Christianity on the pastor. Because then what happens when the pastor blows out? And some of you have experienced that. How many have there been? Don't hang your Christianity on the pastor. You're going to get disappointed one way or another. As that man of God blows out and goes back into sin, where's that going to leave you? But if you hang your Christianity on God, your King, if you hang Christianity, your Christianity, on God, your King, and keep Him as your King. And you will not fall into the same trap that Israel fell into during this period. So it was, their, his, it was his last attempt to warn them. They were hard-hearted. And so they said, no, we want a king over us. Make us a king so that we can be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and may go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Hearken unto their voice, and make them a king. 
And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, Go ye every man unto his city. And now over the next one or two chapters, if you actually take, if you, if you take the time and read over the next two chapters, actually read over the next several chapters. Do that. Read over the next several chapters. And read about who was chosen king. It wasn't a horrible person who was chosen king, but he only lasted about two years. And then he wasn't a good person anymore. You remember what we said? I think it was on Sunday morning. I think, we think it came out in the... It was, I don't know if I mentioned it. It's either Thursday night or Sunday morning. You know, God is the only boss that will fire you and let you keep working. Now, I can't, claim, I can't claim the credit for that observation, okay? I learned that from another man. But it really struck me right between the eyes. I mean, it really got my attention. God is the only boss that will fire you and let you keep working. And that's not a good thing, necessarily. It's not always a good thing. Because the example that that gentleman used in talking about it, he said, you know, Saul, because that was the name of their first king. You read about him in the next chapters, in the chapters to come. Saul was king for 38 years, I think. 38 years. But he was only anointed for two his first two years. It was in his third year that he made a bad call. And then he kept making bad calls. That's the thing. It's not that God just dropped the hammer on his head because you read about the next king that we had was David. And David made some terrible decisions. But David always turned again his heart to the Lord. Saul didn't. Saul made excuses. And then he became bitter and nasty and wicked in his heart and it was and it grew and it grew and it grew over time until finally finally God had had absolutely enough and he said that's it man you're done you're cut off and then it wasn't long after that that Saul was killed in battle and it was effectively a suicide he just did it by way of other people if uh, if, my, if my memory of the historical account is correct but what's the overall lesson for us What's the overall, what's the takeaway for us? Keep God as your king. Be careful what you pray for. And make sure you're in your right mind when you're asking for it. And if it's something that you know deep down in your heart is not according to the will of God, don't force the issue. Don't force the issue. If Israel had just heeded Samuel. They still respected Samuel enough to at least come to him. Okay? So we'll give them credit for that. But if they had just heeded him, and maybe if he had said to him, you know what? No, I ain't making you a king. God's got this thing set up the way that he wants it. Go back to your houses. Do what you know to do. Trust God. May, I don't know. Maybe he should have reproved them. We can't really say. We weren't there. But Samuel took it to God and God said, you know what, go ahead and give them what they're asking for. Let God stay your king. It doesn't mean don't listen to your pastor, but it means keep God as your king. Because my goodness, what if I come up here with some kind of crazy, hey, God gave me a revelation. Hey, all you brothers, let's get five wives each. Now I use that one because one, it's funny. And two, it's completely outrageous, and it's not something that it's not some place I would ever go. Okay, because there's plenty of Bible against that. Thank you. So no worries there. But if you if you hung your Christianity on your pastor, well then, 
At least one brother is going to be shouting up, Amen! He's going to go get him five wives. The point is, you hang your whole relationship with God on the pastor. That pastor could lead you astray. He could start cooking up some crazy, just completely banana balls doctrine. And then folks will start, and, and people will believe it. They may not be stupid, but a lot of times, people will just be looking for an excuse. There's a lot of people that followed Brigham Young West when he, came, when, when he started promoting that junk. Let God be your king, and you'll never go wrong. Let God be your king, and you, ne you need never fall. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.